have fought for myself. And that is why I'm still here. So nobody really wanted to jump on board and say, yes, hi, uh, we are an HIV known hospital. I remember there's a very, very, very good chance that this gentleman would have never engaged in care. It's a very stigmatizing disease, I think. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining HIV podcast. This is a show dedicated to exploring the intersection of HIV AIDS healthcare with other social justice issues. I'm your first co-host, Anu. And I'm your second co-host, Anshul. We're two soon-to-be medical students with a passion for HIV healthcare. In our first season, join us as we talk to patients, healthcare providers, social workers, and others across the nation on the HIV care continuum. Through these conversations, we hope to highlight different social, clinical, and scientific issues faced by people living with HIV. Before we dive in though, remember to follow us on social media where we post episode teasers, guest spotlights, and general HIV care information and resources. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Redefining HIV. On today's show, we'd like to welcome Dr. Tzidaldi the director of the HIV program at Temple University Hospital. She has clinical interests in HIV and women's health and engages in research through HIV clinical trials. She has been awarded in areas of community service, women's health, humanism, medicine, and clinical practice. We brought her on today's show for her distinct focus on supporting community health, the time and effort she's invested in placing significant importance to the patient-physician relationship, and her stance as a health advocate for her patients, as she considers many of the social determinants affecting her patients' health. So without further ado, we'd like to welcome Dr. Tadaldi onto our podcast today. Thank you so much, Dr. Tadaldi, for joining us. Um, it is so great. We are so excited to have you on our podcast. So starting at the very beginning of your HIV journey, can you describe for us what it was like when patients would first come in presenting with this infection that you didn't even know what it was and later it was called GERD? What was that like for you? Sure. Uh, and thank you for having me on the, the show today. Um, part of the experience was unanticipated and that was it was 1984, so HIV was clearly um, in the ascendancy in terms of people coming into the hospital. Um, it was before we actually could diagnose it correctly. Um, yeah. So I was seeing all these patients, both in the practice and when I was on the, um, the wards, as we called them then, um, with students and residents. And it was clearly... Um, you know, the proportion of patients that we were seeing who were coming in with these often um, bizarre opportunistic infections or just, you know, failure to thrive was um, was a, a real eye-opener. And this was all pre-services um, that we take for granted now. There was really no home care services. There were no... Um, you know, pick lines, other things that enabled people to get um, the type of intensity of care that was needed. And before, you know, as I said, before there was a diagnostic test, before there was a definitive treatment. 
And um, at the time, the, the stigma was you did not, because there was still some uncertainty about how is it, how is it transmitted? You know, uh, it was thought that the healthcare workers were at risk, et cetera. So nobody really wanted to jump on board and say, yes, hi, uh, we are an HIV known hospital. I remember it, um, they often said, well, it's a problem for, you know, downtown or somewhere else mm -hmm. um, because they were concerned about impacting other patients coming into the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, of course, a few years later, they opened up the, I think it was Madonna who opened their <laughs> HIV practice or, or immunodeficiency uh, program um, with great fanfare. But it was... Um, it was then that I, you saw, you almost saw the demographics of who was being infected and who was being admitted to the hospital. And um, although there was a lot of press being given to the uh, gay community, we were certainly seeing that in Washington Heights, um, but it was, you know, men of color usually. And then we would see, um, you know, Latinos coming in. Um, and all the other demographic groups that, in fact, had not really been recognized, especially women, um, in terms of the diseases that they had and the identification. Wow. I can only imagine, yeah. Because even now, women still make up a good quarter of the HIV diagnoses that we, we see. And when we then factor in intersecting identities... We see that Black women are the most impacted and Hispanic Latina women make up a good percentage as well. So kind of now exploring your role at Temple, um, you've been there for the last couple decades now and you're currently serving as the HIV program director at the hospital. So can you speak to how you decided to transition over to North Philly? So after a couple of years, I, not so much because of HIV, but I wanted to try a different type of, of setting. I had not picked academic general medicine uh, by any planning, um, but I liked it, but I wanted to find a program that was a little more manageable. And I knew about Temple and they had openings and um, in their general internal medicine. And it was much more of a program that I was familiar with. I trained in a safety net hospital. This was mm -hmm. clearly a safety net um, hospital, although again, was sort of in transition because it had, uh, you know, the area in North Philadelphia had undergone a lot of demographic change. So when I came to Philly, um, again, the epidemic was in full force, but there really wasn't anybody sort of saying, send your patients you know, we're willing to take care of them. And there was a group of us in our practice yeah. who were starting to both identify and then um, start to treat the patients. And I think through networking, um, there were a couple of opportunities that came up. One was working in the Children's Hospital, St. Christopher's, which was part of Temple's training, still is. Um, but they had um, developed a demonstration project because they were identifying infants born with HIV-related complications. And they recognized that the parents were not getting treated. So they asked for someone to come over and take care of the parents. Now, I'm mm -hmm. not, a, you know, I'm not ID trained. I'm a general internist, but <laughs> I had at that point as much experience as anybody else. So I raised my hand. 
um, and went over there with a nurse practitioner and we did the adult care while they did the pediatric care. And so for over a decade, we collaborated on a really co-located care for HIV infected families is what it was. And then through some other, you know, that throughout Philadelphia, there was also an effort to try and collaborate around getting medications for patients, clinical trials for patients. So it became part of a community-based network for research. And that started the sort of the research angle at Temple's program. And then ultimately came to find out about Ryan White program, which started in 1990. And um, it took a while, but started the program here to get um, funding for case managers, for providers. And we've, you know, expanded our reach in terms of um, what services we provide. But that was a way to make it possible, again, because um, it wasn't as if there was really a, a great effort to say, oh, we're an HIV treating hospital, <laughs> you know, yeah. come up here. I think a lot of times they thought I brought HIV to North Philadelphia rather than it being when you look on a map, it's there. It's sort of in the, it's like uh, real estate. It's where where you are and in terms of the high transmission rates. And we always had, mm. um, you know, equal numbers of men and women in our practice. And I think really reflects the demographics of North Philadelphia. So that was sort of how mm. the, the program got started. I did... Um, what was then called compassionate use uh, for medications as each drug, because the history of HIV therapeutics was 1987 was AZT. I can name almost every year, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a couple years later was 3TC or lamivudine. So as each drug came out, you would apply for compassionate use yeah. and then you would get um, medications delivered that you could dispense. And you know, we did a lot of what, what in retrospect was not the best therapeutics, you know, giving drugs one at a time. We now know it has to be combination therapy, but that's all we had. And um, yeah, and so I used to get calls from patients all over the, many states because they would look to see where you could get drugs. <laughs> it was like the buyer's club. You can come to Temple and um, I'll hook you up with <laughs> medications. Um, yeah. So I used to run a little, uh, pharmacy out of the, <laughs> the office, <laughs> but, um, that's, you know, that's what there was at the time. And again, um, through the network and getting involved in research, we were able to get, um, you know, involved in clinical trials and getting access to our, uh, for those drugs to our patients. Um, I think quickly before we move on to another topic, could you, just for people in our audience who don't know what compassionate use entails, could you maybe talk about how, because compassionate use refers to like the fast tracking through FDA for certain like right. severe diseases, correct? And can you speak to maybe like some of the ethical implications of that as well, especially with something like HIV and in a time where you didn't really know anything, you kind of were just like trying your best? Oh, yes always a political topic. No, it is. It's a very political topic because <laughs> uh, to get the compassionate use, it was. It was not yet FDA approved. You had to, you know, sort of plead your case to patients and submit all these report forms to see that the patient qualified 
um, for the medication because obviously they were hoping to get it approved by the FDA and out into the to the marketplace. So it was really saying, you know, this patient either has such an advanced case, not likely to benefit. Can we just get this drug? And um, yeah. it, it used to, quite honestly, it used to be like a small industry of just trying to register patients to be able to get the medications. Um, and it still exists, but I would say the HIV epidemic was one of the most politi- larger political efforts. The approval process was taking long. Who was included in the trials was taking too long. Mm-hmm. So this was all with the idea of accelerating the pace for drug approval. I think one other thing I was also curious about, I think when you have so many different treatments that are still undergoing extensive clinical trials and still being tested and researched upon, how do you as a physician go about pairing out what should be prescribed or what you might recommend for your patient in those moments, given like there could be potential risk with a medication that you don't know too much about? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the alternative for many of these patients who were really at the end stage of their disease and you know their lives was there, there was nothing else. Um, there was nothing else. So at least that was part of the rationale. Again, you know, lessons learned um, across the board, doing it one drug at a time was, was all that you had, but it was also a recipe for, you know, creating resistance amidst the virus and stuff, but the alternatives were not great. And there was a, a, you know, a lot of background in in activist communities about using non-pharmacologic therapies but again, none of them were being used. You know, you saw that in the, uh, if you saw the movie, The Dallas Buyers Club, um, you know, people were using all sorts of things that had immune modulating properties. And there was a great underground about information being used, you know, for off-label use or other stuff to get people treatment. Um, so, you know, it, it was because there were not any great alternatives. Then, you know, starting in the early 90s, you combination of drugs. And then there was effort to get the the coverage by, um, you know, all of, you know, the insurance, not just the insurance, but Medicaid, Medicare, you know, to sort of get a broader um, base of approval. And that's where you started to see the development of the national program for ADAP, AIDS Drugs Assistance Programs. So each state could start to buy, or not buy, but put on their uh, formulary medications for patients living with HIV. So that was then for patients who got Medicaid, a way for them to be able to access these drugs. I mean, speaking of like accessibility, I know one interesting story that we've, I mean, our past conversations kind of touched on was related to Ryan White the Ryan White program and its coverage and how it started. Um, and we were kind of here curious to hear a little bit more about um, your perception of like how that program started, why it took until 1990 for um, this sort of program that financially supports the like people living with HIV to come up and appear in the first place and like the impetus for that starting. Well, this was, again, a political advocacy to try and get coverage um, especially, you know, in the United States where a lot of insurance was or services were uh, employer-based and people were getting sick, losing insurance. So this was an advocacy uh, of many constituents 
to try and get funding to provide services for patients uh, living with uh, HIV and additional services, not just medical, but case management services, nutritional services, other sort of like what has become to be identified as the medical home, but all of these, and for people uninsured, a way to get it covered um, that was not necessarily, um, you know, a state Medicaid base, but a program that could either provide services for uninsured patients or enhance services for people that did have insurance. And part of that, ultimately, the program, as we talked about, was named for Ryan White, who was um, the good, the, what we could say, uh, the good face of HIV. He was a young hemophiliac. He did not acquire his HIV through drugs or sex. So he was sort of a face of HIV that um, created a great deal of uh, sympathy about the plight of individuals living with HIV. And so ultimately the federal government created the, the program that is now probably the, the backbone for HIV services nationally. Um, mo you'll, you'll hear people refer to Ryan White clinics. So these are all throughout the United States um, programs that have been established to provide a wide array of services for individuals and have really been part of the reason that we have the success today, not just the therapeutics, but the whole program, these safety net programs. Okay, yeah. So despite Ryan White not having been started as early as it maybe should have or not necessarily for certain HIV positive patient populations, such as men who have sex with men and IV drug users mm -hmm. and those from lower socioeconomic communities, it right. seems like they have still been positively impacted by this program. Um, we even noticed that Ryan White specifically has a minority AIDS initiative for marginalized and vulnerable communities. Um, so would you agree? Would you say that is the case? Yeah, I mean, the um, one is obviously being able to achieve the, the goals of, the, of our national strategy is making sure that when we diagnose, because that's the first step, is that we engage patients in care and that there should not be, hopefully, many communities, although there are some where you can access services regardless of um, your insurance status, your risk group. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be a, a large tent yeah. to cover everybody. And um, and I think it has shown to be a very effective safety net program. Um, some of the states have struggled with getting coverage for the certain medications, certainly as a lot of the drugs were coming out and being approved, you know, and, and the expanded recommendations. States sometimes put in their restrictions about who could get them and whatever, but I think it's now with the general approach of treating everybody, they, they pretty much everybody is on, on board with that. So, I mean, it seems like it's done like a lot for, I guess, reaching this idea of equitable healthcare. I know you talked about coming to Temple and working at like really connecting with a lot of community resources out there. Um, and like, it wasn't like you started the like the HIV care program. It was there, and you just kind of rallied up the resources to support it. So I'm kind of curious to hear a lot about like your work as director um, at the program now. 
Yeah, well, it's evolved over over time. Uh, I mean, in the beginning, it, it still is a, lo a lot of coordinating direct care services, making sure that we have enough staff and that we have a variety of services, both medical and non-medical, you know, case management. We're always trying to, <laughs> um, you know, get more um, involved. But some of it is also, you know, why is this not um, also supported by healthcare in, in general. So a lot of it still is overseeing both direct clinical care and administrating the, for example, the Ryan White piece of it is, you know, uh, once you have a program that's uh, funded externally, you're always making sure you're meeting their, their, their metrics, their performance measures. Are you achieving what, you know, we're giving you money. Are you doing what you say you're going to do? Are you getting enough people identified, linked to care, controlled on medication. So there's all sorts of standards to which we are held. And that takes a bit of time in, um, in coordinating that. And then for, for many years in, in the role was accessing um, clinical trials, getting people, um, especially you know communities of color and in a community like North Philadelphia, access to new drugs, getting them and working with a lot of the challenges in embracing research, because that was, you know, we see it now with, you know, vaccine hesitation or deliberation, you know, there's, there's a lot of history there about um, getting involved in, in research trials. But we, um, I think we created a, uh, a home, I'd like to think that, where patients feel comfortable and felt that they were they were being uh, taken care of and that if we were offering access to to um, either new medications or whatever, that they would feel, you know, confident and comfortable that it was being recommended by their usual providers. And that for many um, patients, I think, goes a long way. You know, it's, it's often very hard to find continuity in your in your medical care. And, you know, we've been hanging out here now for quite a while. Uh, we haven't gone anywhere and hopefully we won't. So that I think is um, is actually a plus where people say they know that, um, you know, we've been here, we have not left town. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're consistently there. And I think that it goes a long way. That's a really interesting point because we know that um, especially with minorities, misrepresentation or underrepresentation in clinical research is such a big issue even now. So it seems like a big part of it is building a, like your patient relationship and that trust. So if you introduce some sort of like clinical trial and like, you know, like ask them if they want to take part, they feel more comfortable and feel like they're in safer hands, especially with the history. It does. And I, I am very sensitive to the fact that I am working in predominantly an area, uh, communities of color or um, uh, even linguistically Latino communities, yeah. and to try and make sure that our program continues to try and have our providers also reflect that, yeah. um, say that's a, you know, it's an ongoing um, challenge, um, because, uh, you know, to recognize that in many instances where you can have improvements in health, even related to who's your provider. And so we try and have that, um, 
as much as we can in terms of who we have in our program. And, um, and also, yeah, I think that goes to the, the training and, you know, sort of also some of the selection for providers that get involved in doing HIV care. So in looking at creating kind of a comfortable environment for patients from vulnerable, marginalized communities to access care, to be comfortable with participating in research trials. Um, you're mentioning now like concordance with the identity of their physician. I'm also wondering, like, do, have you noticed other factors or have, what like other things have contributed towards making patients who might traditionally feel um, untrustful of the medical institution for the history that um, certain communities, African-American community, Hispanic community have been kind of targeted by medical research in the past? I, um, I guess I'm kind of wondering, like, what other ways have you seen um, productive in strengthening those relationships with patients from those communities? Well, I, I think at the heart, whether we're, you know, culturally congruent, culturally or ethnically congruent, is that the one-to-one interaction. If you're not there um, trying to respect the end of, you know, the patient that's in front of you, try and be as as open in that relationship and uh, non-judgmental as you can and sort of, you know, making yourselves available no matter what happens, um, you know, in terms of in their in the individual's life or whatever, that that's part of the fundamental. I mean, that's just the relationship that you have with a patient. Um, and then where we can is to try and ensure that we do have some congruity, um, you know, whether it's linguistic, speaking Spanish, or, um, you know, having providers of color, it's, um, it's, you know, what we like to try and achieve. In part one, we got a broader idea of how Dr. Tadaldi got involved in HIV healthcare and how that has inspired her work and her role as the director of the HIV program at Temple University Hospital. In part two of this interview, we will dive deeper into the specific communities that Dr. Tadaldi supports and more on the nature of her work.